Blog Talk Radio. you're joining us again today. Today we are going to be continuing our ongoing series about protecting the environment, about becoming more knowledgeable about the effects that human beings have been having on our environment and different ways we can interact with our environment to help protect it from the ill acts of many of our brothers and sisters. To do this, to engage this conversation today, I have invited to join us on the air the director of a recently released film, Walt, I'm sorry, A Fierce Green Fire. Mark Kitchell is the director, The Battle for a Living Planet. A Fierce Green Fire is a powerful film that just aired last week on uh, PBS Sunday night, and it really uh, rocked the nation because it tells a story of the history of the environmental movement, and it uh, really opens up many of the subjects that need to be discussed about what we have done to our planet, what we have done to our national parks, where most of the dumping is occurring, which you could imagine is in uh, ethnic neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, Latino neighborhoods across the country, and the damage this has done on so many levels. So, Walter... Hello? Oh, hi, Mitchell. Hi. Uh, Just stick with me for one moment, Mark, and I'll be right to you. Uh, We have with us uh, an eager director, and for good reason. He's been at this project for years now. He has engaged some real leading figures in the film. He uh, He has narrators such as Robert Redford, Ashley Judd, Van Jones, Isabel Allende, and Meryl Streep each of whom narrates a distinct segment of this film that is just riveting, it's beautiful, it really engages the audience, and it's a real honor and pleasure to have the director who has won many awards. This was uh, shown at Sundance Festival and many others to uh, really resounding merit and recognition. So, uh, Mark, are you with us? 
I am. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Welcome to A Better World. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Mitchell. Mark, you endeavored uh, on a big, big project here. It's certainly not possible to encompass the entirety of the history of the environmental movement in one film, although I remember seeing its first iteration uh, perhaps a couple of years ago when you and I first met, and it was a good deal longer than it is now. Um, what is it that inspired you to to uh, endeavor in such a big project as this? Well, it was my wife Ruthie's idea, and she said, I know you ought to do the history of the environmental movement. And um, I done. She just woke up one day and said, "I have a, I have something good for you to do, Mark. You have nothing to do today." Actually, it was riding up from L.A. to San Francisco on the freeway. Yes, <laughs> when there's a lot of time and it's very beautiful. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. you know, I'd done Berkeley in the '60s, which was a sort of big picture history of the protest movements of that era. And, you know, I think we were both intrigued by the idea that there ought to be a big-picture history of the environmental movement, that 50 years after um, it had begun, it was sort of time to take on the broader and deeper meanings to try and put together all those pieces of the biggest movement the world had ever seen, and yet one that's so sort of atomized and episodic that it didn't really know what it was about. So, yeah, we were looking for that next stage of of what is this environmentalism all about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think one of the effects of the film, and for those of you in the audience who uh, have not seen it, that's probably most of you so far, but I think that tide will change. It was aired on PBS last week. I saw it there. And... uh, do you have other showings that are uh, upcoming on a national level, Mark? Well, it's out on Netflix now, so anybody can stream it who has Netflix. And it's available on all your favorite platforms. So you can go to iTunes and Amazon and you can download it or stream it. Uh, and it's still um, um, streaming from American Masters website for another six weeks or so into early June and uh, you know I think we oh so people can go to people can go to pbs.com and uh, and go to American Masters and it could be seen in its well in its abridged version there yeah there's two versions of the film there's the TV version which is 53 minutes and there's the full-length film, which is 100 minutes, an hour 40. And on Netflix and on all your favorite platforms, you can get the full film. And on PBS American Masters, whatever that website is, um, you can see the 53-minute uh, TV version probably through the first week in June. Okay. Well, I, you know, I really encourage... Uh our audience to uh, tune into one of these um, platforms or venues to see uh, either the full-length version or the abridged. Either. Both are very good. Of course, the longer one is uh, even more thorough, 
in examining the history of the movement. One of the uh, senses that I got, Mark, is that uh, by watching the film, one can become more objective toward the entirety of the movement in this country, that because the subject itself is so sort of a instinctive, it's so deep, it, it, is, it is us in so many ways, that one loses one's uh, perspective on it. And to see it laid out the way you did, all the way back to really Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the interesting Republican conservationist, you know, all the way up who began the, the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, all the way through, uh, really gives John Muir the beginning of the Sierra Club. All the way through, we see the development of that, and we see the contrary. We see the development of the dam system on the Colorado River, for instance, and, and the way uh, big business was seeking to usurp and exploit um, nature, which they just saw as a bevy of so-called free resources. So I, I really just want to commend you on that perspective that you bring to anybody sort of looking in who may not know anything formally about the movement. I mean, I've been in it forever, and yet I learned a tremendous amount just by kind of peeking in through the window that you provided us through this film. So just at the well, top can of I give your audience say, you. a quick sketch of the acts, the yeah. five acts, the five main stories? Please do, yeah. Walk us okay, through it great. as well as then why don't you start if you would with the name of Fierce Green Fire, where that originates. Well, Aldo Leopold was a young forest ranger in about a hundred years ago and uh his job was to shoot wolves and predators so that there would be more deer. And so one day he saw the wolf and he went um down the draw to uh, see, and he saw a fierce beam fire in the dying wolf's eye. And that was his awakening. He began to understand that the wolf knew more about the order of things than he did. And uh, if you go read mm. Thinking Like a Mountain in Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, that's the story, and there's more to it. It's a beautiful story of ecological mm. awakening. And you pretty well described the, the, the first act, which is around the conservation movement, principally of the 60s, and the main story is halting dams in the Grand Canyon. And the protagonist is David Brower and the Sierra Club. Um, and there were a series of dams going back to Hetch Hetchy and Yosemite at the turn of the century, and then uh, Dinosaur in the 50s, and they lost Grand Canyon. And then they decided to really make their stand in the Grand Canyon. And there was a pivotal event. It really was the end of the era of building big dams. And it was conservation's greatest victory. And it came right as conservation was flowering. And that happens just as um, Earth Day is coming along and reinventing it as the environmental movement with its focus on pollution and um that's the second act is the 70s and pollution. And the main story there is uh, Lois Gibbs and the Angry Housewives of Love Canal battling 20,000 tons of toxic waste that are buried 
in their neighborhood underneath the school where Lois's son was going to kindergarten. And that was a two-year battle. Lois Gibbs, who's the protagonist of that movement. Yeah. Yes, indeed. A Love Canal housewife in upstate New York. Yes. Yes, yes. And she's gone on and spent the last 35 years helping 10,000 other Loises take on all sorts of grassroots, not-in-my-backyard struggles against toxics and pollutants and everything else. She's a great hero, one of the great unsung leaders of the movement. Um, yeah. That act also has in a section on environmental justice movements and how they began. And uh, Dr. Bob Bullard is um, the one who guides us through that. It's a, it's a wonderful sequence. Everybody should see it just to see environmental justice's origins. And the third act is about ecology movements and alternatives. And um, in the longer version, it has going back to the land and renewable energy and a lot and of And that's narrated by Van Jones. Yes, it is. And um, But the main story there is Greenpeace in the early uh, campaigns against uh, whaling, Russian whaling, and, and the Canadian who would go out and club the baby harp seals to death for their white coats. And the protagonist in that act is Paul Watson, who was one of the founders of Greenpeace and then was forced out because he you know, crossed their line about nonviolence by throwing a sealer's club in the water. And um, he went on to found Sea Shepherd, and that became his vehicle for taking on the pirate whalers. He cleared the North Atlantic of pirate whalers uh, and then went on and started scuttling and sinking uh, the whaling nation's uh, fleets and he's just a great hero and you know we just just recently Japan uh, lost an international court of justice ruling and is being forced to stop whaling in the Antarctic and he's been fighting that for 12 years Anyway, I digress. Um, in the no, no, no. That's a very important. Uh, that's a very important point. Uh, so, based on so, this is interesting because there are two cases of the of an important departure from a uh, a state organization that you cite in yeah. the film. The first yeah. one is, I believe, it was David Brower, correct? Correct. Who was forced out of the Sierra Club because he wanted to turn the entire planet into a national park, and they just <laughs> wouldn't abide by that. <laughs> I think that's just great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we love that I idea. was very young at the time, so I wasn't aware of those details. But And then the second one is Paul Watson, Paul Watson leaving Greenpeace uh, because his view was also, should we say, you know, you could say more radical, but what we're really saying is actually more conservative. His view was to be more conserving of our habitat and our our cetacean habitat, so to speak, and um, and therefore he had to leave that that context. And now yeah, he's he scored this this victory. You're saying in Japan? Yeah, against Japan. It was Australia who uh, took Japan to court, but it was clearly as a result of Paul Watson and Sea Shepherd going out and challenging the Japanese uh, scientific, in quotes, whaling uh, for the last dozen years. 
And then in Act 4, we wanted to internationalize it and take it bigger because the movement keeps growing. Its issues get bigger and bigger. And so we took on in Act 4 sort of global resource issues and crises. And the, the one that we focus on is uh, Chico Mendez and, and the rubber tappers in the Amazon saving the rainforest. And that's a great right, story. The issue of deforestation, and, in other words. Yeah, yeah. The ranchers coming in and the loggers coming in and cutting down the forest. And the rubber tappers were, you know, they, they fought to set up uh, reserves that would be rubber tapper reserves. And um, it was a great, great success. And uh, then we broadened out to look at other international movements like Chipko in India, the tree huggers, and Wangari Maathai and the Green Belt Movement in Kenya. And then we mm-hmm. bring it up to Act 5 and the mother of all environmental crises, uh, you guessed it, climate change. And yes. we tell a 25-year story of struggle that sort of culminates with Copenhagen in 2009 and Paul Hawken doing his brilliant Blessed Unrest thesis that it's not mm-hmm. a movement, it's humanity's immune response, and it's growing, and it brings yes. together environmental and indigenous and social justice issues, and there are two million groups working on these issues worldwide, and and then we end with a bang. We sort of throw the kitchen sink in and show 64 screens of people doing it everywhere all the time. Yes, yes sort of a la blessed unrest the the ngos yeah. the small organizations the even the social enterprise companies that are surrounded by eco-friendly eco-sensitive sustainable and green um values priorities and are living out of that and standing for it in the world yeah yeah it's a, a uh, it's a very moving film, Mark, and it really does. You do touch on a lot of um, material in it in um, a relatively short amount of time. We are speaking with the director of a just-released film, A Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet, Mark Kitchell. Mark has got a, an interesting background. He's a producer, writer, director, videographer, best known for his film, uh, back some time ago called Berkeley in the 60s, which won the Sundance Audience Award in 1990 and was nominated for an Academy Award as well as other top honors. He's gone on to uh, now really uncover, unfold the history of the environmental movement in the United States, which this film does. It was just aired, as we were saying at the beginning of the show, on PBS just last Sunday, where you can still see it. Maybe it's on PBS.com or American Masters. If you Google that, you can see it there, uh, the uh, television version, or on Netflix and a few other places. So, uh, Mark, I, I just really enjoyed the film. I feel like I've gotten a, you know, a real crash course uh, you know, education about it. I'd like to kind of go back now that you've outlined the five, <clears throat> five uh, uh, acts that have been uh, narrated sequentially by Robert Redford, Ash- Ashley Judd, 
Van Jones, Isabel Allende, and Meryl Streep. You just really lined up an all-star cast. Maybe I'll be in the next one. I don't know if I'm really nice to you. Maybe that'll happen. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, let's go back to the uh, the dams, because I think most of us don't really know much about the role of the dams, especially out by the Colorado River, and that the environmental movement if you could have called it that at the time, really more the conservationist movement, struck a couple of real big victories way back um, that sort of set the uh, the pace for things in some very powerful ways. Could you go over who David Brower was and uh, what happened back then, the story of the dams? Sure. David Brower was the first hired paid uh, Sierra Club staff. Um, they hired him as executive director in 1953, and it was specifically uh, to try and stop a dam and dinosaur national monument, which is sort of eastern Utah, where the Green and the Yampa Rivers come together, I believe. And there's a place called Echo Park, and they were going to you know, build one of a dozen dams that were part of the Colorado River Storage Project and that natural amphitheater. And um, the principle, as far as the Sierra Club was concerned, was, you know, no dams in national parks. And they had lost that one in Hetch Hetchy with Yosemite National Park. But they were determined to go back and fight this time. And Brower uh, led a seven-year struggle and they used a lot of media, and Bowers uh, sort of famous for. Uh, Let me just doing interject here. The the Hetchy Dam was a lot of the work that John Muir was was doing. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, the founder Muir, of the Sierra Club. That that well, he fought that. John Muir fought Hetch Hetchy for I think a dozen years, from about 1902 to 1914. And, uh, you know, San Francisco had to go and have an earthquake to uh, force (laughs) Congress to let it have this national park for a dam. Um, Yes. A water supply so that it wouldn't burn down anymore. But um, this was the 1950s, and they managed to stop the dam and dinosaur monument. But... They made a deal that they would not oppose a dam further down the Colorado River at Glen Canyon. And the reason was Glen Canyon was not a national park. And uh, Brower talks very movingly. This was a. He had. uh, It's the greatest mistake he ever made in his life. He was regretted it ever since. Glen Canyon was drowned. He tried to stop it. um, and couldn't stop it, and they they drowned Glen Canyon, and now Lake Powell is what 150 miles long, and it's fabulous, fabulous scenery. And they went in there as the waters were rising and photographed it, and put out a book called the Place That No One Knew. And uh, those photographs they had a big effect on me as a kid. That book, um, mm-hmm. it was an important. Um, you know, the kind of loss that, you know, you're never going to let that happen again, kind of. Yes. And um, so 
when a couple of years later they proposed to build two dams and a tunnel to connect them that was basically going to empty the Grand Canyon of the river that carved it. Um, they were just determined to stop it. And yeah. uh, uh, Congress had already passed the legislation and already authorized the dam, and Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior, and he was famous as a conservationist, but he's also from Arizona, and you can't fight dams when you're from Arizona. And um, so the odds were stacked against him, and as Jerry Mander says in the film, you know, Brower was desperate, and he decided to try advertising, and he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and a few other papers, and uh, he talked about uh, flooding the Grand Canyon for profit. And they got a huge response. They got about 10,000 pieces of mail to Stuart Udall. And uh, they kept running ads. Yeah, this is back in the 1960s, right? So this is way early, way before the ease of something like email or the Internet. So people would sit down and pen a letter or type a letter on a typewriter and sign it and lick the stamp and stick it on an envelope and mail it. (laughs) Yeah. And then what happened was the IRS. They sicked the IRS on the Sierra Club. So but the point is that Udall had to back down. <laughs> yeah, but not until, you know, they tried to punish the Sierra Club by taking away their tax deductibility. Um, right, their tax-exempt and, status. Yeah. And, and so they sicked the, uh, like they they the IRS on the Sierra yeah. Club, right. Yeah, they took away their status, their tax deductibility, and that was like a jujitsu move. People were so outraged at that that yeah. they joined the Sierra Club in droves, and it really swung the support uh, to the Sierra Club for halting the dams in the Grand Canyon. And so it's it's a great case of uh, the opponents uh, doing your work David for and you, Goliath. right? Yeah, <laughs> right. David and Goliath, yeah. Isn't that interesting, (laughs) right? In other words, when the administration politicized the IRS and tried to take away the tax exempt status, it worked. It just bit them in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing story. So the Sierra Club was truly one of the, uh, probably the first uh, environmental association tax exempt association in the United States and it has gone on to this day I mean it's of course gone through any number of different uh, perturbations of being more or more conservative and more progressive you know it got bandied about it's not one clean linear uh, thing at all It's the great democracy of the environmental movement, and it's got chapters, and they all vote, and it's it's an amazing organization. And often it has been too conservative or not ready to be as out front as it should be. And yes, but it was the it was the conservation organization that survived Earth Day and the rise of a new environmental movement uh, the best. And yes, I see. Um, 
And, you know, it's still to this day, you know, to this day they still don't allow their people to get arrested. They they lifted it one time for the Keystone Pipeline protest uh, outside the White House, but they still haven't, uh, you know, lifted entirely their ban on getting arrested. So, you know, they're that kind of organization. They're mainstream. And uh, but still, they're a fabulous organization, and they reinvented themselves so well uh, by bringing in Michael Brune from Rainforest Action Network and so on. And I just over the last couple of years of distributing the film, I've been really impressed with the Sierra Club and all their mm-hmm. chapters all over the country. It's an extraordinary group of people. Do you know, Mark, how many? Uh, Members they have? I think they're up to one and a half or two million. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's that might over a million. stand as the very largest and quantitatively the largest yeah. in the country. Yeah, and you know, Mitchell, when I was doing research and reading the whole Earth catalog, they had a page on environmental groups, and there were six of them listed. Can you believe that? 1968 or whenever that was, there were only six environmental groups. Amazing. (laughs) And the whole Earth Catalog was its own environmental organization. I like the way you had Stuart Brand, the uh, founder of the whole Earth Catalog, which I adored back then. It was bigger than I was, but I loved that, (laughs) that catalog. Everybody did, mm-hmm. and it really was a Bible. It's, I love that you got him in there. You, so there's, you know, there's some nostalgia in it all for I think those of us of our general yeah. generation, you know, which is fabulous. So let's let's talk there, a little bit about environmental justice, and I don't know. If yeah, well, I would like to move sequentially. Let's move sequentially through the acts here, mm-hmm. so people can kind of follow and then listen back to this interview perhaps and say, ah, yes, they talked about this, they talked about that. Well, yeah, indeed, um, another very important piece uh, was um, the merging of of, uh, the, well, it's not exactly altogether a merging, but when the black movement, the civil rights movement, opened up to recognizing the importance of the environmental movement that they were really uh, singing the same song in so many ways. That was a very, why don't you talk about that? Well, Bob Bullard would say um, the civil rights movement didn't get it and the environmental movement didn't get it. And it took two years for those uh, two movements to come together. And, what years um, were those? I I would say that they were. Let's see, Warren County happens in '83, and I think it would probably be the '80s. Um, yes, that that it was happening in the mid '80s. I think by '87 um, there was a robust environmental justice movement. And in 91 or 92, there was a People of Color Environmental Summit in Washington, which was its real uh, sort of announcement that it had arrived. Um, Bob Bullard's original book is called Dumping in Dixie. And his wife is a sociologist. Oh, he's a sociologist. His wife is a lawyer who was doing the first civil rights case 
of suing the city of Houston for putting all their dumps and incinerators in the black neighborhoods. And mm. he did a study, and he found that 100% of the dumps and four out of the five incinerators were all in black neighborhoods. And mm. and then he started looking around the country, and he found it was true in, in Dallas, and it was true all through the southern toxic waste belt, which stretches from the old mines of West Virginia down to Emel, Alabama, which is the biggest toxic waste dump in the country. And he tells a very funny story about West Virginia, how Union Carbide, he says, most people don't even know they're blacks in West Virginia. And this company, Union Carbide, found them. The only, <laughs> the only factory that manufactures methyl isocyanate, MIC, the same chemical that killed all those people in Bhopal, India, was an mm. institute West Virginia, and institute West Virginia has always been ninety five percent black. Mm. It's just a, it's a wonderful laugh. So in line. a sense, we and almost had our own Bhopal right here in West Virginia. Yes, there's been a couple of uh, there's been a couple of spills from that Union Carbide plant. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. Sure. So, it's interesting. Um, uh, I I work in some measure with a. Uh, really interesting uh, emergence from this movement. Uh, Jerome Ringo, who testifies now in front of Congress and has been for many years, uh, who started uh, the Apollo Project out on the West Coast. He's good friends with uh, Van Jones and many others. And uh, we work together on a couple of uh, environmental initiatives on a global level. And uh, I was thinking about him as I was watching Bob Bullard, who I think must have been one of his heroes, because you had a gentleman from Louisiana who was an activist who was protesting the petrochemical uh, pollution there. And that's where Jerome is actually from. And he was in the petrochemical industry until he had his own awakening, if you will, and and uh, changed sides and has been a, a major voice for uh, both black Americans and uh, the environmental justice movement altogether. So I that really kind of hit home with me. This whole idea of apartheid you mentioned, uh, American style, Bob Bullard brought up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting mm-hmm. that it would show up. But here, then he goes right? on, and at the end, he talks about how they decided that it's race and class. Yes. And that if white people are getting dumped on, or brown people, it's it's you know solidarity, and um, that's yes. really where they've been at um, since then. And uh, you well, know, sure, that's where Martin Luther King. That's where Martin Luther King ultimately got to as well uh, shortly before they assassinated him, where it wasn't a question of color any longer. It was, a, it was a question of class, and it was a question of money. And when they realized that he caught on to that one, uh, that was really going a little too far. Yeah. Uh, let me just let everybody know we are speaking with Mark Kitchell, who is the director of a film that just was released, a Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet. You're listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World. We're on here every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Visit us at our website at 
www.abetterworld.tv. And if you don't yet get the newsletter, please do sign up there. It's free. It's out once a week, and it lets you know who we have on as our guests when we have guests, that is, which is usually on both the radio show and the weekly TV show here in New York City. In fact, um, Mark, you'll be interested to know that this week on the uh, A Better World TV, I had, well, first Dr. John Lilly, famous psychoanalyst and uh, uh, inventor, founder of the Cetacean Nation, which actually became recognized at the United Nations where the dolphins and whales were recognized as a nation, acknowledged as a nation. That was the work of John Lillian with the help Mm -hmm. of Michael Bailey, who was a key figure in the Greenpeace movement and uh, played a very active and, I should say, activist role, putting his life on the line like so many uh, Greenpeace members and activists have. And so I had that well, on really been Monday heart, night that's the and you tonight. Of this movie. Excuse me? I'm sorry? Yeah, that's the heart and soul of this movie is we decided that we were going to come at it from movement and activism. And, you know, the usual environmental film is something that's built around an issue and it reveals the problem and the crisis and then it ends with a cry for, for yeah. help for people to do something. And I had a call to action. Yeah, and we thought that that, you know, no matter how good it is, um, often comes across as an eco-bummer. And we thought it would be much more engaging and impassioned um, and um, better for the audience if we came at it from the point of view of activism. And you get to see people taking up these issues and fighting with everything they've got against enormous odds and succeeding uh, in the in the end and because yeah. there's four stories of success against enormous odds and then the fifth one climate change is still in suspense and so we found that to be a much <laughs> more engaging you could say that again <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I, true I talk about it. why don't we talk about I, I just don't want to miss out on talking about climate change no 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 we'll get back to but you know what Let, let's circle back because I not that we have to be so sequential, but I really would like to talk for a moment about But you really do outline victories, you know, and I, I think that's a real strong part of the film. And one of them is uh, Lois Gibbs at Love Canal holding uh, some EPA representatives hostage. And that ended up forcing the hand of the White House, President Jimmy Carter, actually coming to Love Count. Maybe you can tell us that story. That's, that's such a heroic story with such a victory on behalf of the people. Well, it, it's a classic uh, not-in-my-backyard story. It's the classic sort of grassroots. It represents a moment at which... Um, not only did the toxic start bubbling up, but it's also where the um, where the focus of the movement started to shift from upper and middle class to lower and working class, where it became more about bulls and birds and fishes dying, and it um, I think in important ways became a more humanist movement that had a broader appeal in society. But you know yeah. they they. 
they they moved into this neighborhood and discovered they were on top of twenty thousand tons of toxic waste and yeah um and lois um uh, at first with you know shaking knees went around the neighborhood uh trying to get a petition signed to close the school and the school administrator said, you know, if I listen to one irate hysterical housewife, I have to, uh, you know, close the whole yeah. school. Um, right. And so, and as she went around, she discovered that everybody else in the neighborhood was suffering and their basements were leaking and they had cancer and uh, birth defects and, you know, double rows of teeth and three ears yeah. and... You know, and an important weapon what they did was that they they did at their own health study. And that health study they then took to the state and they threw it on the floor and said it's useless housewife data. And so they did the they then had to do their own study and they found the exact same results. Fifty six percent of the children in Love Canal were born with birth defects. But then they attributed it to a random clustering of genetically defective people. Can you believe that? <laughs> can you believe that? I mean, it's so self-serving that, because that they, they could even say act. that with a straight face. It's unbelievable yeah, well, they, that they think that people would believe that nonsense. You know, it's well, so they admitted insulting. that there were forty other sites in New York alone that they had to clean up, and so yes. um, so Lois led a two-year battle. The residents battled hard. They forced the state to bring in the federal government. The federal government did a study uh, of chromosome damage and found that there was a lot of it and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and the EPA recommended relocation and the White House vetoed it. And that's the point at which they took a couple of EPA officials hostage. And they gave Basically the housewives the housewives, let's make the point, the housewives at Love Canal took yeah. the male representatives of the EPA hostage, locked them in they the did. house. Yeah. They did. I hope they didn't have much food in the refrigerator. Oh, this was fine, in fact. Oh, well, but they agreed to let him go, but only after um, their congressman had met with President Carter, and they had put Carter on notice that in two days' time, if they did not have an order to evacuate Love Canal, uh, that they were going to make what happened today look like a Sesame Street picnic. <laughs> I love that line. And uh, truly, and it worked. Truly. They, yes. And this, this media countdown began, you know. 12 hours, 8 hours, so on. And so Lois calls up the White House and they agree. They agree now, to relocate they, they, She had let the hostages go by then, is that correct? Yes, yes, she did. How yeah. long were they in captivity? <laughs> uh, probably word. about 7 or 8 hours. Oh, I see, okay. So it wasn't an it wasn't overnight. Like the Iran, and it was the same time that the Iran hostage crisis was going on. Yes, exactly. Isn't that an interesting parallel? Yeah. 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 Okay, and wonderful. Well, thank you for walking us through that. It ended up that yeah. Jimmy Carter himself, President Carter, went to the Love Canal to stand there, right there with Lois Gibbs. 
And he said there must never be another love canal in our country. And guess how many they found? 50,000. 50,000. Of toxic dumping sites in people's backyards? Yeah. Yep. Yep. All over the country. And um, it was just a hot, a shocking, horrid, you know, toxic legacy that corporations of every sort had uh, been committing unregulated for, you know, most of the 20th century. And, um, you know, there it was revealed. Um, and it, it took that. You know, Love Canal was not the first nor the worst. It was... Right. The difference was... Lois Gibbs and the people of Love Canal really fought to expose what was going on, and and uh, they really made it into. And of course, uh, Carter comes to Love Canal just a week before Reagan defeats him for president in 1980, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they tried to roll back all this stuff. They particularly tried to roll back Superfund, which was passed by a lame duck Congress, uh, and. Uh, it's been a long, hard battle, but um, they made a great deal of um, good and cleaned up a lot of places. And Lois, at first, her task was, the way she saw it, was to plug up all the toilets. And uh, and they were really working on the end of the pipe, and they managed to stop all new toxic waste dumps in this country since then. And and then they turned around and started working on the front of the pipe and things like uh, the McToxics campaign forced McDonald's to give up their polystyrene containers and they worked with DuPont to clean up their manufacturing processes. And it was was amazing how much could be cleaned up if you just sort of put your mind to it. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a very good point. And it's also interesting because she is an unsung hero. You do not see her in the papers. You do not see her at the conferences. I mean, as far as I know. And uh, yet she's working just, it sounds, tirelessly behind the scenes making this incredible progress in very real and measurable ways of protecting our rivers and streams and communities from toxic dumping yeah. and, and chemicalization and she's like taking that. On, she's taking on fracking now. And I was just going to say, that's, that's one overt omission in the film that, you know, I know there's only so much you can handle, but fracking is very much the the issue of our day, and a very important one at that. So, and so she's come up yeah. with Freddy the Fracosaurus, this inflatable dinosaur that they're going to take around <laughs> to demonstrations, and, you know. <laughs> oh, that is very funny. Let's let's fast forward now to let's just look for a moment at the new Alchemy Institute and John Todd and looking at some solutions that have been uh surfacing. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then Paul Hawken. Okay, well, um parallel to this environmental movement around pollution, there was a whole wave of uh people who were sort of alternative ecology movements, and they were really looking to develop alternatives for housing, for agriculture, for energy, for pretty much the way we make and do everything. And, they, you know, mm-hmm. 
And uh, one of the greatest of them was the New Alchemy Institute, where John and Nancy Todd and a bunch of other people were really trying to um, do a lot of things. They're most famous for what they call a living machine, which was a big greenhouse with big tanks of uh, fluid, which they used for three things, to clean their sewage and to grow food and to heat and cool the ark, their building. Yes. And um, it's a great intuitive structure and just gorgeous and beautiful, and I wish there were more of them around. Um, Yes. There were other people building geodesic domes and, you know, organic agriculture was starting at this time. And the 70s, I remember best for the alternative energy. You know, in California, wind turbines started to go up and there was sort of a wind rush. And they were experimenting with photovoltaics and solar thermal projects in the desert and there was even a place down in the Imperial Valley where they were taking cow ships and turning it into power. And it was... Yeah, I mean, remember in 1976, Mark, I was at a uh, a theater festival in Baltimore, and uh, part of it, there was a uh, a school bus that ran on chicken dunk. I never heard of anything uh, okay. such like that. I mean, I was all of like 20, yeah. 22 years old. That is just yeah. amazing, yeah. You know? And then along came really Amory my Levins, Go ahead. and we did not know. Amory Levins taught us all so much about energy. You know, until yes. that time, we didn't have a proper appreciation of how important energy was. And he came up with his end-use, least-cost analysis, which was really about finding the cheapest way to uh, satisfy our needs. And it was a an analysis that really kind of transformed. And he's most famous for pointing to conservation and efficiency as the first great leaps in energy uh, towards renewable energy. And he came up with the soft pass as opposed to the hard pass of coal, oil, yeah, and nuclear. Yeah, describe what that means. Well, the soft pass was if you would. on... Yeah, Um it was basically conservation and efficiency gains that were going to lead to renewables and a world yeah. that could be powered entirely by renewables and we could phase out nuclear and coal and oil. Uh, but the first gigantic step, which we still haven't really fulfilled or exhausted, was all the efficiency and conservation gains. And... Um, you know, we're still finding that the, what he called megawatts, and the, the cheapest megawatts are the ones that you can save from ever having to use or produce. Yeah. And, uh, and he was, so he's brilliant. He's also been at it for 35 years, kind of like Lois. And That's right. he's come up with brilliant things like the hypercar and, you know, uh, He's somebody else. We didn't get to do him justice in this film, so I'm thinking about a new film yes, that will be more about things like that. Um, yeah, I know. But that's Talk a that. moment. Thank you about that. Talk a moment in our closing uh, about uh, Chico Mendez, and then, of course, you've got a relative to uh, climate change. You've got to talk about 350.org and uh, Bill McKibben for a moment, please. Is this a closing? Do I have three minutes? What do I got? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> 
Okay. We've got five. <coughs> well, by the 80s, there were global resource crises emerging all over the world, and the forests were maybe the most explicit, but it was happening with soil, with water, with the oceans, with wildlife and biodiversity. The sixth great extinction was beginning. There were all these global-scale resource issues, and that became, by the late 80s, I think, the terms of, of the battle. And, you know, that was about the point at which James Hansen did his famous testimony uh, before Congress, in, in, Congress. Which he said, when, yeah. in which he said uh, the greenhouse effect is real and it's changing our climate now, and we've got to do something about it. I believe that was in 88. And yeah. curious footnote, when he gave that testimony, we were at 350 parts per million on carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And yeah. that has subsequently been determined to be the safe limit. And the basis, the name of a powerful movement to fight climate change. And um, so it's been, since 1988, it's been 25, 26 years that we've been fighting this. And for most of the 90s, there wasn't much of a movement against it. It was mostly scientists and the IPCC and people writing books, McKibben and Elizabeth Colbert and people like that. Um, yes. There was a precursor in um, ozone depletion, and mm -hmm. when it became clear in the 80s that there was a hole over the Antarctic, an ozone hole, the world really came together, led by the U.S., and really did something about it, the uh, Montreal Protocol, and uh, people thought, well, we'll just do that, we'll run that scenario again. <laughs> And we'll just yeah. deal with it, except that it strikes at the very heart of our Western industrial civilization, and there's nothing you can do uh, short of getting rid of coal and oil uh, to yeah. Uh, yeah. stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere. And uh, it's been the mother of all battles. And, and yet I would say it's not the main thing. There is... I wanted to do an Act 6, which is it's not just climate change. And I wanted to talk about the sustainable revolution that I believe is is bigger, bigger than the Industrial Revolution. It's going to take about as long. And really, it's about civilizational transformation. It's about changing the way we make and do everything. And mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with how we think of ourselves and the stuff that you do so well, Mitchell. And you know, it's got to be a thoroughgoing uh, transformation of our civilization if we're going to survive and, you know, come into sustainable balance with nature. And yes, indeed. So that's sort of where we got to. And that's a very important point. On. Exactly. I, I think I, Act 6 really needs to be uh, written and filmed, Mark. I really do. I, I got to tell you, I, I spend probably most of my time looking at the psychological components and the perception belief system component in everything that's going on, including watching your film, if you think about the antagonist, for instance, to um, uh, David Brower in government, who, um, his name is escaping me this very moment, uh, the head of the Forest Service, Gifford Pinchot, or Pinchot. Yeah. 
who was acting as an antagonist back then, and then fast forward and you find the same kind of thing then with Udall. And what you see is that there are people that come into this world believing that the earth is just there, sort of like a giant lollipop to be kind of licked and, pardon my French, sucked by anyone who has the wherewithal to do so, whoever can kind of get to there first. And then then there are others who see it as a land, a planet of bounty and abundance to be shared in by all in some kind of, you know, equality doesn't exist, it never has existed, it probably never will exist, but in some kind of reasonable, humane way that all can share and uh, that it needs to be taken care of, that it needs to be preserved and conserved and respected as a sacred space. You know, well, probably the what is it that forms the, the mindset? But what is the mindset that forms the former? And what is the mindset that forms the latter type of psychology? You know, excuse me, what was that? Probably the basic lesson of the film is that we need bottom-up protest forcing the top-down politics. And that yes. the movement will yes. never get anywhere until people are active and out in the streets and working on these issues and really fighting for it because we found, especially with climate change, over and over and over again that without bottom-up pressure, nothing changes. So yeah. so that's, yeah. that's the thing that that's it really needs. It's you know? a good point. At the end of the day, I understand that, you know, external shock is one of the most potent forces we have in the world. I really do, but um, because of what my background is, I tend to want to deconstruct the, the mindset that created the problem in the first place and deal with it really on, you could say, that micro level, the psychological level, which then spills out to the sociological level, and, and examine how values get formed and priorities formed in the first place, what part of the brain is getting activated, and what parts of the brain remain dormant. Well, that's the ecology, the basic lesson of ecology is that it's all connected. So while you're that's doing right. that, we want everybody out in the streets, too. <laughs> that's right. Listen, Mark Kitchell, I want to just thank you for being on today and for your good work as a filmmaker and director. You're welcome. You're it's welcome. really, truly, truly a pleasure. Absolutely. What is your website for folks? It's afearscreenfire.com, triple W, afearscreen.afearscreenfire.com. And everything's on there, including my phone number. And that will lead you probably to all the other websites, too. And Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, listen, right. appreciate it. Keep up uh, the Thanks for having me on. Right. Absolutely. Thanks, Mitchell. Talk soon. All right. Sure. Bye-bye now. Wow, that was uh, truly uh, a splendid film that, you know, he used the phrase eco-bummer, you know, a lot of uh, reviewing of ecological damage is a bummer, no question about it. This film really does pack a punch because it's one victory after another, and it's very, very uplifting to look at our history of the environmental movement from that point of view. We're 
altogether too familiar with the, uh, you could almost say, daily losses, the daily crushes we experience these days as a result of the power, let's say, of Alec and of the Koch brothers and of their control of our uh, Congress. I mean, it's insane. And while things haven't changed all that much, it has become more amplified in some ways more severe, but also more polarized in that more people are recognizing the very vital importance of our relationship to our weather, to our climate, and who we are relative to that pollution. And that man really does have a role. Yes, there are cycles. Of course there are. We rely on cycles. There are ice ages. We know there are solar storms. There are asteroids, folks, I know, and there is what we've been given to take care of, what we are here to steward, which is our beautiful planet and her nature, Gaia, as a living being from which we all come and which we are obliged for all reasons, all reasons to nurture. And that's so much of the kind of attitude that we here at A Better World are seeking to cultivate in ourselves personally and in our audiences because it's uh, this attitude of reverence, of respect, not to say without iconoclasm, don't get me wrong, and irreverence, that is an, an important place for that too. But at base, we are these biological slash spiritual beings trying to have a human experience and it ain't going all that well if you ask me it's very very jagged and that's why i ultimately come back to uh, the individual come back to the system in which we are all raised and reared and the family unit where we learn our fundamental sense of value and proportion and priorities and education in our earliest years going back in utero, folks. Yes, yes. Because we know that one person makes a huge difference. And people, by and large, tend to be followers, not leaders. And sometimes the best follower has leadership skills by knowing how to follow. By the way, I know that may sound paradoxical, because it is. Uh, but we make leaders as well. And in Mark Kitchell's film, A Fierce Green Fire, he shows some leadership in the personages of Lois Gibbs, who around the Love Canal, which we've spoken about several times this evening. Teddy Roosevelt, who, Republican, out there as a conservationist, looking to protect nature from a really corporate exploitation. Back then, you know, at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, 
you know, we have these characters. Then what we didn't mention today is when the book The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson emerged and the effect that that had on our consciousness as a collective. It's so interesting. And we go from Carter, who put solar panels on the roof of the White House, to Reagan, who summarily removed them and says, and this quote is in the film, uh, sure, there are a lot of environmentalists out there, and I don't think they're going to be satisfied until the White House becomes a bird's nest. You know, that kind of ha-ha, back-slapping attitude, which is just the epitome of ignorance that the American people in their John Wayne-style mindset just adore. And yeah, it's funny. I laugh, too. But I'm also crying at the stupidity that it represents and reflects in our so uneducated, and I don't mean just intellectually, I mean emotionally uneducated uh, populace. It's just unfortunately altogether too true. Not to say in the midst of it all, there aren't brilliant people, emotionally intelligent people. There are many, many, I would even say most people have a level of brilliance, genius in many cases, you know, the rank and file so-called average person. But, you know, we've got to make this more widespread. We've got to let go of holding on to ideas of concepts. Well, you can say, well, you're holding on to a concept that CO2 is affecting our climate. Well, any scientist is going to tell you that if there's an excess of any element, any chemical, you're going to be in trouble. And CO2 is a natural part of the system. There's no problem with CO2 in itself. My God, CO2 is the tree's oxygen. So, no, that's not the problem. Don't misunderstand, please. But the excess which comes about as a result of our habits and our addiction to power and money and not being able to get out of a cycle of oil and methane release and heavy-duty meat-eating, and agribusiness, and food pollution. And when you look at the entire picture, the entire planetary picture, and what we have done in a space that could have been made so beautiful if we were to harmonize with nature, the whole domain of biomimicry, for instance, speaks to that. Uh, the work of... Um, Horst Reckelbacher, in a book that I interviewed him about, and um, Horst Reckelbacher, who was really a dear friend, not a close, close, close friend, but certainly a friend over the course of years. I met him in the early 90s, uh, just past this past February, and it's, uh, I experienced it as a tremendous loss. Horst, for those of you who may not know by name, was the founder of Aveda, and did so much to help to enrich the uh, the um, indigenous people of the Amazon, especially by purchasing their plants for 
the Aveda essences and oils. He did so much to help so many, uh, and he got rather wealthy from his good work at Aveda and then selling the company on from there. But his dedication to humanity was magnificent. I truly loved him and had the the great honor and pleasure and privilege of uh, getting to know him fairly well over the years. Uh, This kind of heroism does show up, and God bless that it does. If you go, by the way, to my website, abetterworld.tv, and put his name in, you can dig up that interview with him, although I did a TV interview with him back in the mid-90s originally. Uh, So we as a people need to just wake up. God knows we need to change our ways, our habits, our thinking, our belief systems, and from there, let's just say we're we're just responsible for pollution. Our personal pollution, thank you very much, as well as systemic pollution based on the way our corporations operate and are allowed to spew out chemicals into our precious waters. In closing, I want to let you all know that I will be starting yet another radio show back at Progressive Radio Network on May 12th, folks. Why does that name, that date sound familiar? Yes, it's my birthday. Indeed, I will be back on the airwaves of Progressive Radio Network on May 12th, 9 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time with a show called The Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin. The Progressive Film Hour with me. So please come and join us over there at Progressive Radio Network. You will most likely be able to hear it from abetterworld.tv and you will be able to call in to listen just like you can do here at 602 753 1860, 602-753-1860. It's all on the website. It's all on the website, yeah. But we're going to be focusing on that show on progressive films, uh, environmental films, political social justice, environmental justice, uh, and we're opening up with Water Wars. So that will be May 12th, Monday, May 12th. And I'm encouraging people to watch the films ahead of time. I will have them listed uh, both at abetterworld.tv and on prn.fm, Gary Knoll's wonderful progressive station. I was on it near the beginning for about six and a half years, just to up to around a year and a half ago with A Better World and Took a little bit of a break, but I'm back now as of May 12th. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. I hope you enjoyed that as I did, listening to Mark Kitchell tell these stories about uh, his film. He had uh, just excellent people on, narrated by none other than uh, Robert Redford, uh, Ashley Judd, Van Jones, Isabel Allende, the cousin of the former uh, president of uh, Chile, and Meryl Streep. 
So many people are into the environmental movement as well they should, as well we all should, and need to stand up in our own unique respective ways to make a difference because our world, my friends, is getting gobbled up. And if you go to our website, you'll see a 93-second animation of the story of climate change. It's very cute. And you'll see it there in the carousel on the very front of it. So enjoy it. Thanks again. Remember that we operate by some fees and donations. If you have it in your heart and your pocketbook to make any kind of donation, either a one-time or monthly, we so appreciate it here at A Better World so we can continue to do our work that is just unstoppable. So on that note, thanks again. And yes, we'll be speaking with Ralph Nader soon about having him on as a guest too to talk about his book as well. Again, Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World, uh, website, abetterworld.tv. Join us, become part of the family, the community, get on the newsletter, and I'll see you all next